levels. But baptism is a doctrine that we can revisit over and over because it's so central to the whole concept of the gospel. I hope to drive that home today um, across a number of, of applications for us. You can put, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to use it as a core, and then I'm gonna, uh, we're going to just work through our seven fundamental points in our outline. This is weird looking. This is a weird looking outline, but I guess it'll work. Um, let me open in a word of prayer and then we'll see if the Lord will help us understand this beautiful um, God-exalting, Christ-centered doctrine. Father, thank you for those that have come out. We do thank you for the rain. We know we need it and uh, may it do what it should do. We pray that it doesn't um, bring about any kind of human destruction, human loss, or human suffering, um, which would be a consequence of us not walking in alignment with you. We understand that, but we ask, oh God, that you would be gracious with the rain and those who are vulnerable to it, not only here in America, but around the world, as weather patterns can be a very serious danger. We thank you for this opportunity. We are asking now, Lord, that you would meet us in this this sweet hour of fellowship and open our eyes and enlarge our hearts around your ordinance and help us to see it for the beauty and the fullness and the sufficiency that it brings to one who is being called into your presence. Um, we pray for the body of Christ around the world. We pray for uh, families, Lord. We pray for young people. We pray for babies. We pray for all who are in need of you to meet you and know you and experience your grace and your word and your truth and your spirit. So we're coming to you now on the grounds of your son's blood. It is the cleansing, purging, washing, sanctifying agency that you use to keep us in a place where we can be confident that our sins are forgiven and we can be confident in a vital uh, immediate fellowship with you. We are also coming to you on the grounds of your son's blood, uh, on your son's righteousness, our standing, immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable, um, Christ in us and we in Christ and you in us, Father, and we in you, this beautiful union of God and man in the person of Christ. We know this to be the mystery of godliness. Help us to see it in the metaphor of baptism tonight. We're praying your blessing upon all the women who have become re recipients of this ordinance for this Sunday, that they would be held, uh, well and healthy and not uh, impeded by any sicknesses or anything, that they would uh, bring their family members out to see symbolically what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And remind many of us, Lord, what that meant for us at that time when we also were called into baptism. This we are asking in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Matthew chapter three, I'm gonna read in Matthew chapter three, verse 13 through 17, Matthew 3, 13 through 17 briefly, and then remind you of the fundamentals of baptism that you already know, but can know better. Matthew 3, verse 13, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. This is what the narrative is teaching. What a remarkable passage of scripture in the beginning of the New Testament. Because in the beginning of the New Testament, baptism is the subject. 
just helping you with what we call the pericope, the ground, ground upon which the New Testament opens up. The New Testament opens up with baptism and baptism of none other than Jesus. This is something to be excited about and thankful. Your New Testament opens up with a doctrine of baptism and the baptism of none other than Jesus. That is not a small thing, okay? Uh, baptism takes on completely significant relevance because of the one who is being baptized. He's actually going to define baptism for us because of him. So notice what the language goes on to say in verse 14. But John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of you. <clears throat> and are you coming unto me? This is, this is Jesus' cousin, you guys know that. John is six months older than Christ. You know, with siblings, you know, we fight about, you know, who's older. If, if you're not legitimately a year or two older than me, then we gonna fight about that, right? Uh, but John was six months older than Christ, and so they were hyper-contemporaries. They were contemporaries. Jesus, we know, is God's son and the creator of the universe, and yet he's submitting to an ordinance that really is all about him and us in him. And that becomes important as an application too. We'll see that in our seventh point. But notice what it says in verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so. English language, let this happen. Okay, now we gotta do this, John. We gotta do this. Suffer it to be so. Allow it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and it lighted upon him and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All right, so for me, baptism is significant because all three persons of the Godhead gathered together in one place at one time under one event. You don't see this much in the scriptures. You hear you have the father vividly speaking from heaven saying, hey, I'm here. You have the third person coming down from heaven in the form of a dove saying, hey, I'm here. Then you have the second person who has been here for about 36 years, okay, 33 years. It'll be 37 after his ministry saying, I'm here. This is Jehovah Shalom. This is Jehovah Shema. The Lord is with you. The Lord is here. This is why in the birth of Christ, it was said, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means by interpretation, God is with us. And you see all three persons. We believe doctrinally in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do we not? <clears throat> now, the reason we do is not because we are like super intellectual and know how to create conundrums out of nothing. We're not mystics and we're not Gnostics and we're not necessarily given to um, hyper complicated uh, theological constructs. Not necessarily, to some degree yes, to some degree no, because to have a relationship with God, you have to admit that there are levels of mystery that you just can't understand, you have to accept. Does that make sense? I mean, that's only logical. He knows everything, we only know a little bit. 
where our confidence lies in any teaching is to be able to at least frame and ground that teaching in explicit biblical teaching, in explicit biblical text. You read Matthew 3, and it's obvious. You have to kind of just really work hard to say there are not three persons in this conversation. Would you agree with that? All right, so... I love the Holy Spirit because he's very humble. He, he takes a position of humility. He doesn't do a lot of talking. He is called in the Bible, the servant, the servant. And when you have a servant master paradigm, the goal of the servant is to act and not be seen, to do and not be heard. That's a servant. And so a lot of people wonder about the Holy Ghost, but look, he's a real dude, okay? He's a real brother. That's, that's you know, get old vernacular, but he's a real thing, okay? And, and he's really important. And what he did by coming down in the form of a dove was to tell us that the gospel is about peace, represented by the dove. And that peace is centered in a person, and that person is who? Jesus. And that Jesus' baptism becomes for us a model of all baptisms when they're properly done. Okay, so now I want us to walk through our outline. This should be PowerPoint. I don't know, but in the opening introduction, we talk about baptism as a what? A doctrine. Do you know what the word doctrine means? Teaching. Teaching. So baptism is not a feeling. Baptism is a teaching. It is a lesson. And that's what we are about to do now. Teach what baptism is. So under that first point, we have what is called the lexical meaning of the word baptism. I mean, in, in any in any discourse, any lecture, any um any teaching, you have to have a, a, a bit of a grip on language to, to be sincere. So the doctrine of baptism opens up if we have a, if you have the PowerPoint, the meaning of baptism has in the Greek a root word, a root word that is called bapto. And you can immediately begin to see the correlation between it and baptism. Can you not? So you have a root, which is a verb, then you have a stem which in Greek grammar is a, a tense, a tense. That is a, 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 a mode of action. So when we use the term baptism, it's, in, it's inferring the idea of the practice of bapto, the practice of bapto. Baptism is the practice of bapto. Now, what is bapto? Bapto is the little Greek uh, verb that means to dip to dip or to plunge or to immerse. You see that in your outline, right? So I'm not going to repeat it because you know how fast class goes. Baptism means to dip or to immerse or to plunge. If you guys are keeping up with me, this is how it would go. When you baptize something, you take that object. This is the object. And you place the object in the subject. When you put the object in the subject, you have baptized it. You have dipped it. Did that make some sense? Now, this is going to be helpful. To baptize something is to take the object and place it in the subject so that the object and the subject become one. Did that make some sense? Now, if you're a good cook, you know you're baptizing all day long. Do you know that? So just understand you are such and such the baptizer. The food doesn't get done without a bunch of baptisms. All right, so when we talk about bapto, baptism, immerse, this is what you see over in verse 16. And Jesus, when he was what? Baptized, what? Came up out of the what? That means he had to go in in order to come out. 
So he went in to be baptized of John, and after the baptism, he came out. So bapto means to immerse, it means to dip, and, and that is the uh, connotative, uh, denotative meaning of the word, and it connotes the idea of union, where the object is placed in the subject and the two become one. Did that make some sense? The two become one. And so that's the idea of baptism in our outline. Now, the thing that I want you to capture about baptism is that baptism signifies entrance. It's in your outline. You don't have to do any extra work. It signifies entrance. It means to enter into something. It's entrance into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Baptism signifies entrance into the kingdom of God. So we kind of want to talk about how rituals do that, how, how um, signs and symbols serve to transition one a person from a certain place into another place, from a certain condition into another condition. Baptism is a symbol of entrance into the kingdom of God. If that idea uh, settles with you, what it means is the person that has not been baptized is in some way still outside of the kingdom. Does that make some sense? Right. And for all of us, the matter of salvation is that one day we were not and another day we were. So there's a before event and then there's an after event. This is really simple. It's the same thing as one day you weren't existing and then the next day you were existing. There was a time when you were not and then there was a time that you what? Were, which also by analogy is the same thing because there was a time when you didn't have a physical being and therefore you were not in the world and then there was a time when you did have a physical being where the seed and the, and the ovum came together and voila, you have a human nature and now you are in the world. You are in the world, in the womb of a woman ready to enter into the world after nine months of preparation. But there was a time when you weren't and then there's a time where you were and Jesus is gonna teach us that that's what baptism signifies as well. So there's a real sense in which you were baptized into your mama's womb in a conjugal relationship between the male and the female, and all of a sudden, you're in a whole body of water. See the metaphor? You're in a whole body of water, and in that water, you're taking on your identity through the genetic combination of mom and dad. That's what I want you to get around the doctrine of baptism right now. It is an entrance doctrine. You are entering into something. That's extremely important to get. Baptism is an entry doctrine. It represents entrance into the kingdom of God. And this is why Jesus said in John chapter three, verses three through five to another theologian who couldn't get it, but I know you will notice what he says. This is explicit terminology around the doctrine of baptism. Jesus answered and said unto him, who was to him? Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, watch the language. He cannot see the kingdom of God. You guys see that? All right, so I want you to understand that the point of entry, and every entry has a point. Would you agree with that? Every entry has a point, but you can have a pre-existing condition that's so bad that you don't even see that point of entry. Does that make some sense? Right, so this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. 
And it's a condition that we all have. It's called spiritual blindness. And this is what you and I are actually seeing as we're working through the pilgrim's progress. Pilgrim is trying to make it into the kingdom. Does that make sense? Right. And so we'll talk more about that tomorrow night on Zoom. Notice what verse, verse 4 says, because we want to make ourselves make, make it to verse 4 and 5. Nicodemus said it to him. Now, Nicodemus is a Sanhedrin theologian. He should have his PhD. He's certainly uh, knowledgeable of Torah, but there's something about Torah that he's missing. And it has everything to do with the nature of the kingdom of God. So Christ is candid with him that you have a problem, son. He says, how Nicodemus raises the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You guys see that? So the question would only be legitimate if Nicodemus kept his categories right. So I'm just going to leave that there because we're dealing with two different categories. If you are broadly aware of the doctrine of baptism, as we are talking about it, Jesus is not talking about physical birth. He's talking about spiritual birth. So Nicodemus is talking physical birth. Jesus is talking spiritual birth. The problem is categories, is it not? There are parallels between the physical birth and the spiritual birth. But if you think Jesus is talking physical birth, except you be born again physically, then Nicodemus's question is valid, but it's problematic. Nicodemus is probably about 40, 50 years old. And he's saying, if I'm going to be born again, I got to reverse the aging process and go back in my mama's womb, right? Theology would not wrap around your head that kind of irrational, absurd imperative. I'm just here to tell you, sound theology anywhere would not tell you you got to reverse the aging process in order to actually have access to the kingdom of God. No, but the metaphor is, is fitting because it does say you got to be born again. Now, notice what he says next. Notice what he says next, verse there it is, verse 5. He says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, here I'm going to talk briefly about what we call the elements of baptism. The elements, okay? Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit. Watch this. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So now what Jesus just taught us is, is that the kingdom of God is an entry point. Didn't he just say that? He says, except you be born of the water and the, the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except you be born again, you cannot see it. So there has to be a, a first, there has to be a revelation given so that one can see where the point of entry is. And then secondly, there has to be an application of what Jesus calls water and what? Spirit, which are, which one is an analogy of the other. One is an analogy of the other. The water is an analogy of the spirit. The spirit of God is frequently associated with and analogized by water. And that's because as water is fluid and uncontrollable and uncontainable in its force and power and um, fluidity, so is the spirit of God. It's uncontainable, it's uncontrollable, it's ungraspable. Ultimately, uh, the analogy falls a little bit short, but you guys remember the first time you heard about the Spirit of God was him brooding above the face of the what? Waters. That's Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The Spirit of God is brooding upon the face of the waters. You got two grand mysteries here. 
all of our universe, particularly our solar system, and probably the whole universe has as its fundamental strike, water was the fundamental base for our whole creation. We all know that from science and from chemistry, do we not? We know that when the Genesis narrative says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he said, and he separated the waters from above and from below, and he began to work with land masses, crustacean, earth, and all that. The Spirit of God was right there hovering over the water. So there's always a correlation between the Spirit representing life and the water that sustains life. In fact, water is a metaphor for life. Isn't that what Jesus taught in John chapter 7, verse 37? Y'all know your Bible. I'm just going to rush you along because of time. If any man thirst, let him come unto me. For out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And Jesus says, and he was speaking of the spirit of God that should be given. So the spirit is a, 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 a type of the water of life given freely to all who ask for it. That makes sense, right? Every child coming into the world has to go through the bursting of that water bag and enter into the world. Bunch of water, bunch of water. Life requires a bunch of water. Is that true? I remember fading the first time Rachel showed up because so much water came out before she came out. I just, I just felt like I was, I'm done because it was red. That means there was blood in it. And that's because when Jesus died for our sin, his baptism represented the shedding of his blood in co-mixture with the water of life because it takes the shedding of blood to bring about life. So when the baby comes out the womb, it's a grand picture of life and redemption and salvation. That makes sense, right? All right, let's keep going because again, time is flying. Look in your outline under uh, baptism is an entry doctrine. I guess I better do this because some of us need to know that when we're talking about the doctrine of baptism, this is what is called a meta-narrative analogy. It's a, an analogy that runs across all of scripture. Baptism was symbolized first in what account in the Bible? The flood and the days of Noah. So Noah's flood was a baptism. You guys know that we explicitly have that reference in our seventh point. But again, if Noah's flood was a reference of baptism, that means water was a constituent part of it, wasn't it? And we notice in the account with Noah that we have an ark, which is a containment mechanism for people who are going through the baptism, right? And the baptism, again, was taking an ark and immersing it in water so that water came up from the ground and water came from the sky and it immersed the ark into that deluge. It was a metaphor of baptism. What is another account in the Old Testament of a metaphor of baptism so that you and I can know from Genesis to Revelation, God is saying baptism is an entry doctrine into the kingdom of God. Remember the children of Israel coming through the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14, right? It's a doctrine of baptism. The water separates, the people go in and they go through and they come out on the other side and the enemy is subsumed under the water, right? I'm getting ready to get into the crisis motif. I'm just starting with examples. The next time you read about baptism in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings chapter five. We won't run it through fully, but start at verse 14. You remember the brother Nahum? He was a leper. He was the only leper in the Old Testament that was healed of his leprosy. 
Naaman was a leper. He was a Syrian ruler, Syrian captain. He's the only one healed. No Israelites were healed of their leprosy. No other people were healed of their leprosy, but Naaman. Now, Naaman was healed of his leprosy by doing the same thing Jesus would do some 900 years after him. And Naaman was healed by doing the same thing that Jesus did in the same place that Jesus did it, which is what river? The river Jordan. Now listen to the language and tell me when Jesus says, except you be born of the water and of the spirit, you can't enter, you can't see. Notice what the language says. Then he, Naaman, went down and did what? In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, guess what that word is? Bapto. Bapto. So Naaman went down and he what? He was baptized. He dipped himself how many times? In all religious symbolism, the number seven is the number of perfection, the number of fullness, the number of beauty, the number of splendor, right? So the seven times signified his total obedience to Elijah who told him, if you want to be rid of your leprosy, you got to enter into the water, right? So now this brings up an interesting doctrinal truth that is a precondition for baptism that I want you guys to capture uh, before we get to our seven points. This is, this is called the three stages of baptism. The before stage, the before stage, this is what we would call theologically the protological stage, what needs to take place before, and then the intra stage, what's happening at the time, and then what we would call the extra stage, or the extra, or the exodus stage, exodus, the outcome. We'll use the word outcome. The, the condition for coming to this entry point called baptism is a B4 condition of what we would call a conflict that leads to condemnation. The man or the woman that's going to come to baptism is coming to baptism because they need to resolve a conflict. They need to resolve a conflict that results in condemnation. This was true for the people in Noah's day when God said, I'm only going to give them 120 years and then the flood's coming because they're in rebellion against me. All the people on the earth was walking in rebellion against God. And you remember what God said? God looked and saw that the imagination of the hearts of men was only evil continually. I have to resolve this conflict because they weren't walking with God. I mean, you know, God runs this thing, right? You know, you and I breathe in and out because we borrowing God's air. You know, it's on a time capsule too. Do you know it's on a time capsule? There's a day when we're going to breathe our last breath and the spirit that God gave us is going to go back to God and we got to meet God and, and, and pay our bills. Or he's going to give us a check, one or two. How, which, which one you want? I'm looking for a check. It's going to be called a check of grace, okay? I'm, I'm just wondering which, which one. Are you going to owe him at the end? Or are you looking for a check because he did something for you that he says he will reward you when you show up, right? You see what I'm saying? He that comes unto God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Paul said it. I'm looking for my reward. This is Second Timothy 4 eight. He said it, right? So don't, don't get crazy on me about, ah, uh, you know, uh, God don't owe me anything. No, but he said, if you work for me here, I'll pay you back then. To me, that's a, that's a good, that's a good trade off. 
Right. And so here, uh, uh, Naaman, what is his conflict? Naaman's conflict is that he's a leper. What's his condemnation? He will die of his leprosy. See what I'm getting at? So now he's in what is called a crisis, isn't he? His crisis is every day of his life, his leprosy is growing. And he knows that if he doesn't do something about it, he's going to die young. Let's call it a crisis. Now, the idea of leprosy is a picture of sin. Your sin and mine is like leprosy. And particularly when you become aware, aware that you are a what? Sinner. So can you guys see with me how pilgrim, the pilgrim, Christian, is struggling with his leprosy-like sin? How it's increasing? How it's causing him to struggle? And how he's seeking a solution to his abounding sin? Do y'all see that? Right, so it's important for you to see the correlation is here, the Naaman is a rich man, he's a wealthy man, he's a powerful man, he's a king, but he's got a problem. This is what we call the conflict leading to condemnation. He's gonna die in a few years from leprosy. Now, some of our dear beloved family in the house knows what I'm talking about, do you not? The awful condition of leprosy. Leprosy, the outward external medical condition, that, that hyperdermatological problem is a metaphor of what we are internally as human beings. We have a conflict that we need to resolve. And God allows that to become a reality to us when he opens our eyes. When you have a revelation that you have a conflict that leads to a condemnation which says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So now my sin needs a solution, doesn't it? And now that compelling conflict and condemnation is driving me to find the point of entry. And what the Bible is going to tell us is the point of entry is in the analogy of baptism. Why? Because baptism teaches us about the death of Jesus Christ and our death in him if we join him in his baptism. That makes sense, right? All right, so in your, um, in your outline, under point number one, I'm going to walk these through. Um, you can look up the other verses you want. Under point number one, notice what it says. Baptism signifies union and what? Identification with Christ where? Beautiful. Listen to Romans chapter six, verse three. Very simple. I'm just going to make a few points on it and then move on. Look under, look at Romans six, three. Notice, know ye not, do you not know, are you not aware that so many of us, I love that construction clause because by the time Paul uses that, and we're in the book of Romans, so we're going to get there and really unpack that, but we get to taste it now. He says, don't you guys know that so many of us as we're what? Stop right there. That's what's going to happen on Sunday. In our church, we get to do it every three or four or five months because people come to know Christ. And it's a beautiful thing to see it, is it not? Know ye not that so many of us as we're baptized. And, and this is the first century. This is about A.D. 59, 60, maybe 61. This is only about 40, 30 years no, about 25 years after Christ. Here we are 2,000 years later, 
Can you imagine what that means? So many of us. How many people all over the world have entered into the waters of baptism because they discovered that they were sinners and they needed a solution and that solution would be found in the person of Christ? It's a beautiful thing. So if you in the house have been baptized as have I, you and I are part of that number. So many of us. So many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, that is the indicative we were baptized into his what? That's right. So what baptism is, is a death solution to a conflict condemnation. A conflict condemnation that says we're sinners and the wages of sin is what? Right. And I, I need a solution to that. The solution to my sin debt is my union with Christ and identification with Christ in his death. That's what we talked about on Sunday, did we? My death has to be joined to his death so that my death can be paid for by his death so I can come out on the other side of my death in his death unto newness of life. That makes sense. You see people get placed in that water. That's a picture of union, identification, and death. Makes sense, right? Listen to what it says. Know ye not that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we were baptized into his death. That is not bad news, ladies and gentlemen. That's good news. That is not bad news. That's good news. I can preach right here. Because you know, when you die, and when I die, we ain't dying with nobody else. It's one per capita. I mean, they probably do, I don't know, have caskets where two and three people can lie together. I know we have peculiar traditions around the world. I get that. But generally, we all die one by one, do we not? Well, Jesus has made room for billions of people to die with him in his death. And I happen to be one of them. And if you're a child of God, you happen to be one of them too. He makes room for others to join him in his death so that they can also join him in his resurrection. That makes sense, right? Therefore, death is not something that we fear because our death can be joined to his death and the consequences of our death and the grounds by which we justly should die is mitigated by the death of Christ. There are great benefits that come out. One verse to uh, elucidate this would be verse four, and then we'll go on. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism. Buried, remember the object is placed into the water. See the picture of burial? That's why we put that body in the ground as Christians. Christian baptism is a picture of our death. And so when we put people in the ground, we are saying the body, which was purchased by Christ's blood, will also one day do what? Come up out of the ground. That's for those of us who actually believe that Jesus owns us, okay? A lot of people don't. So they die and they dis, they dispense of themselves all kinds of ways. But when Jesus owns you, he really has already told you how you should glorify him in your death. So I'll leave that up to you. I, I don't care if you don't care about glorifying him in your death. I do. So I'm just putting a little money aside so, you know, so I don't have to bother people when I die, you know, to have to be under drudgery of, you know, bringing together money to bury you because you were too lazy to put a few dollars aside to glorify God in your death. 
right? It's remarkable. It is remarkable. It is remarkable. And out of all the people, I would not blame third world country people who are struggling with income around this issue. I do blame Americans who spend so much money on so many other material things that they cannot prepare to die in a way that glorifies God. All right, so notice what he says. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in what? Newness of life. This is what we would call the, um, the after effects of baptism, the extra exodus. The extra ex exodus is new life, new life. And it's only symbolic. When we come up out of the water, it's a symbol of us participating in the resurrected life of Christ. If you're a child of God and you died with Christ symbolically in the water, you were buried and you were raised again, you are telling the world that the life you now live in the flesh, you live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Did y'all hear, hear that? This is Galatians 2.20. Can you pull it up? I got time to get through the outline. Think about this, child of God. Every Christian everywhere in the world has a unique kind of life. The kind of life that you have qualitatively is a resurrected life, which means you will never die. Believest thou this? Right, so again, we could drill down into it. We don't have time. But a new life, a resurrected life, is the idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which means even though your physical body dies, your soul does not die. It also means, as I talked about it on Sunday, if Jesus wanted to break the silence barrier and come right now, those of us who are alive will never, ever die. That makes sense, right? This is called the doctrine of the resurrection. That life is in you when you're born again. Am I making some sense? All right, so... You and I ought to take advantage of that knowledge that the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you guys see that doctrine there, Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who what? Loved me and did what? Gave himself... That's what we're talking about in baptism. Because what I want to just say now as we move on is that baptism is about Jesus. Baptism is about Jesus. If we fail to understand that the whole concept and teaching about baptism is really teaching us about Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, then we're not dealing with Christian baptism. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Like, there are all kind of religious uh, institutions that have baptismal type modalities. But Jesus is not even really that much mentioned in their ceremonies. That's not Christian baptism. Christian baptism has Jesus at the heart of the whole event. We're already learning that baptism is union with Jesus in his death. Baptism is rising with Jesus in newness of life. So without Jesus, baptism is nothing. In fact, without Jesus, baptism is not even possible. So when we're talking baptism, we're talking Jesus. 
if it's going to be Christian baptism. So again, notice what point number two says, because I've got to walk through seven of these. We'll get through them. Point number two in your outline, it says baptism teaches the doctrine of what? Atonement by Christ for who? Atonement by Christ for who? This is what we meant earlier when I said, well, you know, I don't have room for other people dying with me when I die. I got to deal with my own death issues. I certainly can't help anyone else that wants to die along with me. All we're going to do is be two broke people having to pay God when we get there. Okay. Now, Jesus has room for an infinite number of people to die with him. That's what's beautiful about this. That makes some sense. Notice the proposition. Baptism teaches the doctrine of atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is the mechanism by which the sins that we have committed against God that that riles his anger, that vents his righteous judgment, that demands that we make a payment and that payment is death is allowed to be paid by a sacrificial lamb motif by the shedding of its blood to pacify the wrath of God on our behalf. Did that come home to you guys? <clears throat> and the reason why I use the analogy of the lamb is because that's who Jesus is. Behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So what Jesus is in his death is God's lamb of sacrifice. For any and all who believe on him and recognize that their death is paid for in his death as they died with him. Does that make sense? Very important for you to get that. The baptism teaches the doctrine of atonement by Christ for sinners. And here's what I want you to capture. While you and I are talking about baptism, Jesus talked about his baptism. And when he talked about his baptism, guess what he knew? His baptism was to die. Luke 12, verse 50, listen to it. So this is the other beautiful thing about Christ, astonishingly beautiful. The moment that Jesus was conscious of his humanity, guess what he knew? He came to die. He came to die. He came to die that we might live. Now, that ought to trip you out. Because just think about it, you know, if, if we deal with just merely the human aspect of Jesus developing and maturing, and the Bible says he did, he was a real human being, so he was not operating out of the infinitude of the perfections of his omniscience as God, he was operating as a real human being like you and I were, are, and were, with all of the dependency factors that are necessary for physical growth. If he was operating in total full omniscience, he would be cheating in the area of being our human representative. Did y'all get what I just stated? He couldn't cheat. He had to really submit to being a fetus in the womb. He had to really depend upon divine providence to keep Mary healthy. He had to really depend upon all of Mary's constituent friends and resources to help Mary go to full term. Jesus had to really depend upon the collaboration between Mary and Joseph and all of the folks to get him here. Jesus had to really depend upon his mother and stepfather to raise him carefully enough until he reached his bar mitzvah. Jesus had to walk by faith. Did you hear what I just stated? 
That's pretty cool uh, ringtone. I like that one. Jesus had to walk by faith because everything that Jesus was in his humanity, he was for me. His very conception in the womb, in the mystery of conception, was for me. That's called the doctrine of substitution, which means his perfect humanity is accrued to me as my perfect humanity because he didn't come for himself. He did not need to. He came for me. He came for you. He came for so many of us. Am I making some sense? So I also say this, this is a parenthetical. You can have it if you struggle with yourself and we should, you know, we got issues. Learn how to get out of yourself into your other self, which is in Christ, because he's a better avatar than your present self. <laughs> now, I teach this in counseling all the time, and I've shared this with you. I don't know why Christians like to live miserable lives, but they do. I think it's just the old habits of growing up in your sin nature. If you want to be happy, really master looking to Christ and understanding his perfections and realizing that they are yours in him. And learn how to, by faith, go as he is, so am I in him. I've taught you that set of syllogisms. All that Christ is, I am in him. All that I am, he was for me. This is the great exchange necessary for us to have hope in a world where in ourselves we are sinful, but in him we are the righteousness of God. So I can actually hold those tandems together and I can negotiate uh, the tension of being this and that at the same time. Can you? That's called the process of sanctification. So I'll say this because I'll get to our other points here in a moment and shut down. To the degree that you are always leaning into your carnal nature, your old man, there's something weak in the area of your faith where you like to go back to that state of misery and really grovel in your carnal nature. When you have every right and freedom to take a journey as the pilgrim is doing away from that old man into the new man in Christ and enjoy the kingdom of God. Because that's what entering into Christ is, entering into the kingdom. And when you enter into the kingdom, you get to enter into a vast dimension of spiritual realities and fullnesses and experiences that constitutes the kingdom for which the king died to bring you into. Did that come home? Yeah. Why? So, no, you can just get the recording. <laughs> now, when you're fully present, you don't need that. But there is no separation between who you are in Christ and who Christ is for you and what it means to be in the kingdom of God for which the king paid for you to be. Wouldn't a benevolent king who feels like he's all that about himself want people to adore him. 
Wouldn't a king like Jesus want people for whom he paid for them to be in his kingdom, to be in his kingdom and to adore him and to enjoy the benefits that accrue from the kingdom of God? After all, there are tons of things in the kingdoms to enjoy. I want to press that home. The kingdom is not a boring place. The kingdom is, a narrow, is not a narrow strait. It's not a Gaza. The kingdom is for people in Gaza. It's to get them out and bring them into the glories of the pre-paradisial promises. But the kingdom of God is a beautiful place with spiritual realities and spiritual blessings and spiritual revelations and spiritual understandings and profound multidimensional realities such as the world that now is and the world to come. And see, when you and I are walking in the light of that revelation, I know you know, as I know, that there is a heaven and there is an earth. There's a second heaven. There's a third heaven. There's a dimension with angels that are there and here at the same time. Do you know that? Do you have an awareness of the role of the angels? I took you purposely through that hierarchical process of worshiping angels and warrior angels and messenger angels and ministering angels, which the Bible is clear they are in the trillions on the behalf of God's people. Angels are always operating in and among us, around us, and for us as ministering spirits on the behalf of those who are heirs of salvation. Would you get, would you understand that? Right. So you don't have to see them. If you do, we're going to have to take you through a credibility test. But it's, it is plausible, biblically it's plausible to see angels. Is that, is that true? Biblically it's plausible. If God wants to pull the veil back, he can show you some stuff. In fact, the reason why I got into the water back when I was 18 years old, uh, beside the fact that he convicted me of my sin and I was just toe up and I wanted out. Besides me believing that Christ was my savior and the first act of obedience is to get in the water. When I read Matthew 3, Matthew 3, 17, and I saw the heavens open up and the Holy Ghost come down like a dove and daddy talking from heaven, that's what I wanted to happen to me. If I get in that water where the Lord talks to me from heaven, will the angels come? Will I have epiphanies? It wasn't quite like that immediately, but over time it was. Are you hearing me? Over time, it was. Over time, the kingdom of God became a visible kingdom for me by faith, by which I could see the glories of what God's word says in those dimensions that you and I don't observe empirically. I can comprehend those dimensions. Can you? I can enjoy those dimensions. I can talk into those dimensions. Those dimensions can remind me of what God's word says about those dimensions. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. If you guys are keeping up with me concerning Pilgrim, I'm just going to show you the corollary. Pilgrim is meeting all kinds of people from the kingdom. Is he not? People are helping him all across the kingdom. They meeting some dark folks too. That's part of the kingdom, okay? You got devils in the kingdom, okay? There's a battle going on. But, but God promises, right? He promises to be our helper, our paraclete, right? Our guide, our shepherd, right? And then he calls us into that multitasking role of celestial, terrestrial creatures. That's what we are. Are we not spiritual? Are we not also physical? 
So we have the dual task of enjoying spiritual realities. Do we not have the power of God abiding in us? Right, you do. Don't question it. Right, you do. It's just a matter of being able to actually enjoy the reality of it and the promises of it and inquire of it. We're just about to deal with the wicked gate for pilgrim. And I'm looking forward to unpacking that because pilgrim, the pilgrim Christian is going to actually really ask God to let him in. And that's what people need to be able to do. You have not because you ask not. All right, let me go on so I can finish up. Notice what he says. I have a baptism. This is Jesus, right? I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened or constrained or shut up until it be what? What was he talking about? His death. He was just days out of being crucified. Stay with me. His own execution, which was by a kangaroo court, a fictitious, fallacious court system that condemned him for charges that on a human level could never ever be proven but because he was the sinner's substitute he had to bear our guilt and shame and so before God he was guilty but his guilt could never ever be substantiated by human beings because he knew no sin did no sin and him was no sin at all he was an innocent spotless impeccable lamb who stood there as Isaiah said with his mouth shut because he knew he had to bear my sin and your sin and our sin and all of the people of God's sin from the beginning of time to the end of time who were called in him does that make sense so he couldn't open his mouth because he was guilty in order that I might be liberated I'm making sense. Am I making sense? Right. And so this is what he meant by he called that his baptism. Now, I was happy to get in the water. Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup pass for me. So I'm trying to help you understand the sacredness of baptism. And you and I can't rise to the level of appreciating baptism without understanding that baptism is centered in Jesus. Is that right? It means nothing if Jesus is not the object and grounds and efficacy and outcome of baptism. Christian baptism, Christian doctrine is always centered in the person of Jesus. So I can tell right now that you are actually benefiting from what I'm saying because it's a sober joy, is it not? A sober joy that one human being coming from heaven and going back to heaven made sure that when he went back to heaven, he took a bunch of us to go with him. So that where he is, I am also. Even right now, I'm in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Are you? You ought to be happy about that. See, it's just for you and I for the rest of the time in our life, we have to somehow bridge the gap between the world that is and the world to come. We have to bridge that gap. We have to be able to bridge it in our mind and believe it and, and, and access those realities by faith as we walk with God. Does that, does that help a little bit? All right, a couple more couple more. Let's go on to uh, point number uh, three. Baptism teaches the doctrine of regeneration or new birth in Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter three, verse five, we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter six in a minute, but go back there for a moment. I'm just going to tap on it. I'm, I'm going to give you three categories if you're writing things down. Jesus answered and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of the water and of the what? He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the water spirit analogy means that in some spiritual dimension, you have to be birthed. 
The water spirit analogy means that in some kind of dimension, you have to be birthed. So the word born again is a preposition with a, uh, with a verb that means to be born a second time. Just write that down for some of you who want to get it. Born a second time. It means born anew. That means in a different way. That, that, that negates what Nicodemus was saying. To be born again a second time the same way is reversing the process. To be born again means to be born a second time, but it means also to be born anew. That means your second birth is not like your first birth. Your first birth is physical. Your second birth is spiritual. You keeping up with me? One more category. One more. I'm going to help you because these are uh, propositional concepts here when it means to be born again. The little adverb there, again, means to be born a second time, again. It means to be born anew in a different way, and then it means to be born from above. That's the dimensional realm. You have to be born a second time, you have to be born anew, and you have to be born from above. A man can receive nothing except to be given from, to him from where? Above. And so when you and I are born again, that is an above event. We're born of God. And where is God? In heaven. So God is the source of our new birth, and he is the ground of that being a different birth, which means when you and I are born again, we are new creatures. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a what? New creature. All right, those are grand promises and grand propositions, and I know that somewhere in your Christian walk early on where these became practical manifestations. Are you keeping up with me? I'm going to drill down into this. I'm not going to let you go until you get it. Because probably one of the most important doctrines in the Bible is the one I'm teaching. So I, I want you to get this. So like one of the things we can do because of our human weakness is we can forget how good God was the day he opened our eyes to his glory. Did that make some sense? I know that in our weakness and sinfulness, we can be so wrapped up in the present moment that we can forget the mystery of God coming to us and bringing us into a reality of our need of Christ and it beginning to draw us as it did Pilgrim. And Pilgrim began his struggle with trying to figure out what to do about his burden. And that kept drawing him. Remember what God has to do? If I be lifted up, I will do what? Draw all men. And again, it's such a beautiful and necessary analysis. How did God work with you one day when you were oblivious to your need for him? You had no crisis. You had no sense of peril. And then the next day you did where sin became a problem for you. You, you needed to resolve it and you were probably on all kind of bypass metals doing all kind of crazy things to kind of medicate yourself or extricate yourself until what God did for you as he's dealing with pilgrim is shut you up to the narrow way and convince you that the only solution to your sin is baptism. I'm using baptism in the larger adumbration of what it means to be in Christ. Y'all got that? And then you discovered in your obedience, which is a gift of God, coming to the waters was a joyful thing to do. 
You mean honor the one who died for me, who bore the wrath of God, who came up under an eternal condemnation in my behalf. All I got to do is analogize that (laughs) in all things water, which at grace, we heat our water up so high. It's a sauna when you get in it. People don't even want to get out. We put them down, it's a metaphor of death, and we want to pull them up and they say, no, leave me under for a while. Leave me under, feel good. And that's called grace. For Christ to come under the terrors of the wrath of God and excruciating experiences that cannot be uttered in, in, in the mind of any of us individually and collectively, and for us to simply trade that with a water molecule metaphor of getting in that water is an amazing trade-off. It's called grace. In Romans 1, 5, Romans 16, 25, it's called the obedience of faith. God is glorified when people get in the water because they actually understand the gospel. Am I making sense? All right, got a few more, then we'll, we'll shut it down for prayer. Number four, baptism teaches the doctrine of what? The resurrection. That's right. That's right. If you go in, it's dying. When you come out, it's what? Resurrection. That's right. Resurrection. Looking at uh, Romans chapter six, verse four. Notice what it says. Therefore, being buried with him in baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father, that's called resurrection. Even so, we also should walk in what? Right. So we do know there is a awful struggle getting to the entrance. There's an awful struggle necessary to get to the entrance. Right. Entrance point is a struggle. That's what we're learning with Pilgrim, is it not? He needs to find that door. But there's also a struggle when you come through that door. Because when you come through the door into the kingdom, you're being called to go to glory. And the journey to glory is fraught with challenges. That's where many of us are now. How many of you guys have been baptized already? Raise your hand. Good. So you're in the middle of the struggle. Are you not? But your struggle is secured by your newness of life in Jesus. And you need to actually honor the struggle because every bit of your struggle is advancing you towards glory. There's nothing about your struggle that's putting you in reverse. You will not see Pilgrim go backwards. You will not see him go backwards. No believer goes backwards. You go down, you go up. You go down, you go up. You never go backwards. Is that good? It's important to know. All right, the next one is important, and we're almost done. Number five, baptism is for believers only. You guys got that? It's an area in which I'm going to do a little bit more explaining of what it means to be uh, the pilgrim on a progress and his name is called Christian. I got to explain that a little bit more clearly to help you understand. Baptism is for believers only. That means people that submit to that process have to have gone through that initial, that initiatory crisis that leads to an understanding, aha, Jesus is the solution. To get into the water, not knowing that Christ is the solution, means you have forfeited what baptism means baptism is not baptism 
if you just take a bath in the sauna at grace. It's only baptism if the water represents the sufferings and death and blood of Christ into which you enter in union like a husband and a wife. Did that make sense? But it has to be predicated on you having your eyes open, seeing the door into the kingdom and going, aha, access into the kingdom of God is by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, the metaphor or the analogy of water baptism tells the world that you're in the kingdom. Does that make some sense? Right. Baptism is extremely important in that regard. And so um, when I say that baptism is for believers only, that's Mark 16, 16. That's Acts 8, 36. I'm all, I'm, my time is almost up. I got, I'll give it five more minutes. Baptism is not for, therefore, babies and children who are too young to comprehend the gospel. So I'll do this little caveat because I know a lot of people are watching who always, you know, ask me these questions and I'm going to do it now. You know, should I get baptized again? Should I get rebaptized? There's some folks that like to get baptized every year. <laughs> you got commitment issues. I already know it. I mean, because think about it. You know, I'm being facetious, but I'm not because, you know, I'm not. If Jesus died one time, then you died one time with him. Jesus ain't dying every day. So when you married him in the water, was that a legitimate marriage or not? Am I making some sense? How many times you couldn't get in the water? You got commitment issues. Now, the the only time, <laughs> the only time we accept what people call rebaptism, because that is a misnomer term, there's really no such thing as rebaptism. Because baptism doesn't envision itself connotatively as something you repeat. So if you do baptism again, it means you really weren't baptized the first time and now you're trying to get it right. That's what I accept. That's what we accept at grace because of our final point, And that is in, in point number six, baptism is the confession of faith rooted in a what? This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to it. I'm almost done. I'll nurture this one just a tad for our audience and for you too. If we don't explain this, and if people don't earnestly embrace the answer, here's what's going to happen. You ready? They're going to come and, and enjoy the presence of the Spirit of God because God is always present in baptisms. He's always present. It's a phenomenal event. Angels are here, you know, terrestrial angels are here, family is here, it's a beautiful time. God is honored because people are saying, I identify with Christ. The problem is, if you're not clear on it when you get in the water this Sunday, you're going to be compelled to want to get in the water five years from now because you weren't clear. Really, we want you to be clear because baptism is a confession that you get it. Did that make some sense? Listen to the language. The light figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. He was describing Noah's flood. The eight souls that were in the ark, they went through a kind of baptism, didn't they? Did they go through a kind of baptism? 
Now, when they came out of the ark, after all of that rain subsided and the, and the ark was on the Mount Ararat and Noah looked out and saw all of this brand new society, that's called a new world. This is called a new world order. When you're born again, it's kind of new world order. Y'all keeping up with me? I guarantee you that his wife didn't jump out the boat and say, man, I can't wait to do that again. <laughs> My people slow. Y'all just slow. I guarantee you she didn't say, let's go through a whole year of hell hanging out in this boat with all these animals and you know, no, they went through a tribulation. They went through a crisis. They went through a death. They went through an ending of the old world and the establishing of the new. They were so glad to get out of that boat. And every day out of that boat reminded them that they were the new Adams family. They had a new world to conquer. They had a new world to conquer. They had a new world to conquer. The goal was to go forward, not backwards. Y'all keeping up with me? So this is what we mean by don't come to the water out of a kind of emotional, just, I know you come to Grace and Grace is a beautiful place, bunch of sinners that love each other. And, you know, your pastor just is a dope preacher. I get that. I get all that. And you, you want to roll with him again. You know, you want everybody to see you on the cameras and everything. I, you know, because the whole world going to see you. And I'm just telling you, they're going to see you. When you climb up there, they're going to see you. And this is permanent. Okay. I'm just letting you know. When you climb up, click, 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 it's going out in the ether everywhere on the planet. At least people will know that you were baptized on January 22nd, 2024. Um, but what we want with it is for you to know why you are doing it. Does it make sense? Because when you're clear on it, and not everybody is, let's say, for instance, you went to a church that did not preach clearly sound doctrine and you're just doing crazy religion and you got in the water because you were compelled by all kind of ulterior motives. Your conscience is not clear that that was the reason for which you got in the water that, that Peter's talking about. So your soul will often be compelled to want to get it right. It is under those terms that we allow what would be another baptism. Did that make some sense? So listen to the language. The life figure wearing to even now baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the what? So if we were to put that in parentheses, you're getting in the water and getting out of the water doesn't change one metabolic structure of your physical being. And therefore it doesn't change one thing around your struggle as a sinner. It only actually glorifies God as a symbol that you have put your whole being and trust to God to get you to glory. And you are confident that the guy that went in before you in your behalf rose again, went to heaven, and that where he is, you are also. Now, what baptism does for you is it publicly and visibly seals your public profession and it's supposed to be a cudgel that pushes you forward to that final day of glorification. Am I making some sense? Right. In the metaphor of marriage, the day that a couple gets married ought to be important to them. I mean, it wanes on us just like our marriage to Jesus wanes on us. It really does. 
And we really need the Holy Spirit to reinvigorate that moment. That moment won't be reinvigorated if that moment was done under a cloud of duress or a set of distractions or a lack of free volition based upon a um, total uh, acquiescence and submission on your part to it. I'm talking about marriage. Am I talking about marriage? Like, this is why marriages struggle, because often when people look up 10 years later, they say, well, what in the world did I do? What, what just happened? I'm just telling you how it goes, okay? Um, and so it is with Jesus. If the gospel's preached carefully, every step towards that water, you are clear that you are demonstrating your union with Jesus in everything that he is. And that because it doesn't have to be repeated again because of the perfections of which he did, you stand on that once for all sacrifice for your sins with its triumph in the resurrection and its hope of a day of glory. That's what makes you a Christian for the rest of your life. No matter how bad and ugly your walk looks, it's paid for and it's going to be radically transformed on the last day. All right, I think, let me see, is that it? Is that number seven? No, one more, one more. Baptism is a command by Christ himself. You got that? That's really simple, but it's important to know. And I'll tell you why. Because as we are all Christians, you live among people, particularly in the 21st century, who love to take shortcuts in their profession of faith. You are, you are encompassed about by Christians who love to exercise self-imposed lordship over Jesus in so many things in their life. When you look at him, you go, do they really actually believe Jesus is Lord? Because Jesus will say, do this, do that, do this, do that. He paid for you. And then they won't do it. Like there'll be people who have sworn they're believers in the church for 20 years, never came to the water. Did y'all hear what I just said? And every ordinance that Jesus gave us, he don't expect nobody else to keep it but us. But you got Christians all over the planet doing all kind of crazy stuff, swearing they married to Jesus. But we don't see a wedding ring because the wedding ring is a symbol of the Holy Ghost that seals you and gives you strength to do those things that manifest your love and commitment to him. Am I making some sense? Right. So when we go, baptism is commanded by Christ himself. That should not need a lengthy exegetical expository development. Can you explain that, Pastor, what that means? Okay. Baptism is a command by Jesus himself to you. Is that a good enough explanation? That's why the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, African brother who's, who began the first and the longest lasting Christian church to date, which I love. I got, I've got uh, some uh, Ethiopian members in our church. One of our new sisters is Ruth. She came to church week before last, and she came in with two other beautiful Ethiopian sisters with the whole Ethiopian garb. How many of you guys saw them? I was saying to some of our brothers, y'all gonna let those sisters get in and get out of here? 
without saying hi. Uh, Ruth is a member of our church. Her sisters are a member of the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church goes all the way back to the Patristic Fathers. It's a beautiful tradition. This is what we are a part of, too. This is what I try to tell us every time we partake of the Lord's table. Stop thinking in terms of your narrow, limited, immediate 21st century scope. We got a family that goes all the way back to Jesus. See what I'm saying? And it's a beautiful thing to know that if we didn't have some Christians obeying him in the waters of baptism, by now, we wouldn't even be doing baptism. Am I making some sense? I know churches that don't baptize people hardly ever. I'm like, what? And you live in a city of 7 million people? And you're not baptizing something? I mean, like one person a year. Y'all can't win one person a year to Christ? That's a problem, would you say? The New Testament is very clear. They continued in the doctrine of the apostles in prayer and breaking of bread from house to house. And many believed on the Lord and were baptized. That's what a local gospel church does. It shares the gospel in such a robust way that people fall in love with Christ and come to the waters. It's no mystery. It's just a matter of the preaching of the gospel. That's the difference. Y'all got that? We are done.